0: How are you? I'm wonderful,
1: Cynthia. How about yourself?
0: Good, good, good. It's funny. Zoom's been acting up for me. I use it for business. And uh, usually I have my podcast microphone and everything, but I find sometimes it's nice to not have all the earphones and everything else on, so.
1: Makes two of us, my friend. I completely understand.
0: So, Where, where do you live?
1: Columbus, Ohio. How about yourself?
0: Washington, D.C. So my mom lived in Cleveland for a long time. She, uh, she worked at... um Case Western and uh, moved on to Michigan, but it was her first indoctrination into real winters, having been on the East Coast where we don't really get a lot of snow. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was fascinated with the fact that you actually had to, you know, park your car in the garage and that you get real snow and you have to actually own a down coat. And <laughs> so we found it infinitely humorous uh, how much she had to adjust herself.
1: Yes, and in, in Cleveland, right, the, the snow belt, right, Like effect snow, and all the stuff that went on there—that's a that's a whole different ballgame than Columbus.
0: Correct, correct, absolutely. Yes. Yeah,
1: so tell me a little about yourself, right? I know, I know what you wrote about the podcast and right, connected to me and how it all works, but the whole goal of this show is to make sure that everybody that listens follows you, invests in services for you, does whatever they can to connect to you. So love yeah. to just know more about you.
0: Yeah. So I am a nurse practitioner by training and kind of fell into becoming an entrepreneur when I got tired of, there's no other way to put it, I got tired of writing prescriptions because I couldn't motivate people. To take better care of themselves, you know I worked in critical care, cardiology, and hundred of people younger than me that were on diabetes medications, blood pressure medicines, cholesterol medicines, and I was like, there has to be a better way. So my business kind of fell out of my strong desire to really educate people about the interrelationship with it all starts with food, it's all about the food. If we don't change the way we eat, we are never going to maximize you know our health and I think there's this kind of limiting beliefs that permeates um, the United States and I'm sure elsewhere that, you know, we kind of bind to this mentality that food isn't important. And so we are in this fast food nation and we eat when we're on the go and we eat this highly processed, um, very nutrient depleted food. And we wonder why we get fat and sick. And I tell people all the time, I'm like, our bodies are designed to be fasting more, eating less, eating more nutrient dense foods. And when I can kind of change people's mindsets Uh, they really, they really find their sweet spot. And I think the bulk of the people that I work with are women, which is fine. I do have some men, uh, but a lot of women that hit, you know, 35 and up. And all of a sudden the game changes. They can't eat the way they did in their twenties. They really can't eat the way they did as a teenager. And all of a sudden, you know, that glass of wine every night, or you going out and partying on the weekends or, you know, eating a lot of processed carbs really catches up with them in a very negative way. So I've kind of created an environment, a safe place as a resource, uh, you know, I'm designed to inspire, educate, and empower women uh, and men to take better care of themselves. And I, and I find, and I tell my children this all the time, that I hope for them that they are able to cultivate and find a niche for themselves where they feel as val- valued and feel that their voice is really heard. And so now I'm, I look at it as I'm now becoming a bigger advocate for people. I do a lot of public speaking, which is probably what I love doing best other than being a mom. Um, and so that's a little bit about me. I've done, I've done a couple big talks. I do a lot of public speaking, as I said, but that's probably my first love. That's what it's kind of evolved into. So clinician, nutrition person, and then kind of public speaking is, is my love.
1: I love that. I love that so much. And so your clients, is do you do only one-to-one? Is it a one-to-many model? Is it an educational platform? How do you, how do you serve people?
0: I probably do all of the above. I'm very active on social media. I have pretty solid uh, following on Instagram and Twitter and growing on YouTube. I always say that uh, YouTube is the last bastion of social media. I haven't yet figured out, but I'm, I'm working on it. Yep. Uh, and then it evolves into group programs and then one-on-ones, but I've been scaling back on the one-on-ones to be able to grow the group program so will give me more flexibility to be able to um, serve as many people as possible and that means the public speaking realm which you know social media is an incredible platform for that I mean you can exponentially meet you know millions of people if you if you do it right so
1: absolutely I love it I love this is going to be a, an incredible interview right I'm so, the health the wellness that I'll ask a bunch of quite let me say this the right way I love this because it's part of really who I am and mm-hmm. right, I believe in fitness, faith, family, and finances being the four pillars in which we all need to focus on. And yeah. I went way too heavy into fitness with this false pretense of what fitness really was, right? Anabolics and all my yeah. stuff, like the podcast, I'm very, very open and transparent. So there's no, yeah. but right. What all that meant and the egoic sense of needing, not even adulation, it was insecurity. And so I use muscle to wrap around that and ah. hide from that and, the old thought that I needed to eat every two and a half hours to put on muscle, and and then completely recalibrating, giving all that up two and a half three years ago, and and I fast for at least seventy two hours once a month, like just a water fast. Great.
0: Yeah, that's great.
1: You kind of that intermittent fasting thing, where I'm more of a sixteen and eight, sometimes eighteen and six, mm-hmm. right? Kind of.
0: I think you know. that flexibility, metabolic flexibility, is really the way to freedom. I truly believe that, and I love that you. Touched on the fact because I think when we're younger, we buy into this mentality that it's about the looks, mm-hmm. and then you and then you figure out if if you're evolving as a human being, you figure out that yeah, there's a place for that, but it's more about being healthy, having the energy, sleeping well, connecting with others. That is so much more valuable. Uh, I, I just think that you know in our kind of over-sexualized, um, com- complicated social media environment, that what we see in print ads and movies, it's like kids and young people really get these skewed perspectives on what's normal Mm -hmm. and then you know we're all going to age we live long enough it's going to happen someone was asking me the other day oh my gosh are you worried about aging and i was like well I'm middle-aged now so in my mind I think I'm 30 but I'm not and that's okay but do I want to continue to evolve in such a way that I have plenty of energy to keep up with everyone that I want to Mm-hmm. that i get really high quality sleep that i eat really nutrient dense food i fast as long as i can and then that flexibility piece is really critical and then out of that if i still remain looking fit and healthy that's great but that's not the focus i think that's that's where i think that's where most of us if we mature if we emotionally evolve we work away from that i think when you're a teenager and a really young adult everyone's self absorbed but you hope that people move beyond that
1: Certainly, certainly. So, I don't want to ruin the magic. It's going to be just getting to know you. So, I'll do the little intro right now, and if you're good with that,
0: yep, sounds good.
1: uh, What would you like me to announce you as? Right, obviously Cynthia Thurlow, right. But then, right. uh, Um,
0: I usually say nurse practitioner, nutrition expert, TEDx speaker. I don't know. It just depends. Some people like it for to be super formal, and so I want you to go with you know whatever format you use. I will. I will answer to all of the above.
1: So. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> wonderful wonderful i'll i'll i appreciate that okay so this is 15 minutes of freedom i'm your host ryan Idell. and today i have cynthia thurlow nurse practitioner tedx speaker i'm gonna just call, i'm gonna call you cynthia a nutritional wizard like a guru with what, what we're sharing before we hop on here so we can go formal and informal either way thank you for being a guest on the
0: show Yeah, thank you for having me it's really a pleasure
1: so cynthia I like to start these interviews always the same way, and that's by asking a really a quick question. You used to be a nurse practitioner, right? Like mm-hmm. a different setting, and then you branch into the entrepreneurial space, right? You're, you're a speaker, you're out in public, you do all this stuff. And as you have went down that path of being an entrepreneur, what, what's one lesson that you think someone that's either considering going down that path or that's in that right now and is kind of confused, what's one thing you'd share with them right now that could help get them some clarity?
0: Um, I would say two things. I mean, don't let fear be what holds you back from following your passions. I think that's really critical. And here's the other caveat to that. Invest in you. It is absolutely positively critical when you are making a life transition that you get the support that you need. And hiring business coaches has been one of the best investments I could have made, not only myself, but also in my business. So don't be afraid to spend the money to educate yourself on how to make good business decisions. And that requires some finesse. I can talk through that, but I think that a lot of people, when they transition, they, they pivot. They're like, they get this scarcity mindset. I don't want to spend the money. You got to spend some money to make some money. I mean, that's absolute, but don't be fearful. Just take the leap and have faith that it'll all work out. As long as it's a calculated, you know, you don't want to just go from being the, the sole breadwinner in your family to just becoming an entrepreneur. You need to have a plan, you need to be having communication with your partner if you're married or in a committed relationship talk with your with your children so that everyone understands where you're coming from so it doesn't seem like it just was like a, an abrupt left turn
1: I love that what, what a beautiful lesson especially because I didn't even pay you to bring up coaching right didn't <laughs> a, we just happen to both believe in it so I, mm-hmm. I love that so Cynthia I'd love to unpackage I'll say your brilliance right mm-hmm. from being a, a prescription writer as you would have called it right as a nurse practitioner and then seeing I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I get the impression of like all the deficiencies and all the, right, you're treating the symptom, not the cause. And it right. seems like, if I understand, you've really spun that around and are treating causes now, right? You're fixing the causalities that initiate the diabetes and the mm-hmm. obesity and wow. the heart disease and the, we could go on 40 things together that you're helping fix. How did, how did all that work? What was the timetable? What were the stumbling blocks?
0: This has got to be a crazy story. Uh, Yeah, so so I've been a nurse practitioner for 20 years, which is a long time. But when I became a parent, I had a child that had some life-threatening food allergies. And that was what got me clued in that just continuing to put topical steroids on his eczema was not going to fix the problem. And I kept asking, is it something I'm eating? Because it started when he was an infant, when he was being breastfed. And then it evolved. Even when he was no longer breastfeeding, he still had this eczema. And so that was what got me interested in food. And then I read a book called The Unhealthy Truth. And I have no no affiliation with Robin O'Brien. But her book changed my life because I did not realize, as I think most Western medicine trained providers, I did not realize that there was a lot of contributory factors for this rise in food allergies, which got me diving down the rabbit hole of food. I went on to do a wellness coaching certification, and that didn't really do it. I started a doctoral program. That didn't really do it. And then I found, I stumbled upon a blog of a woman and her book was Eat the Oaks. And so I thought that was fascinating and connected with her and asked her where she had gotten her training. And so to make a long story short, I ended up doing a functional nutrition program and that lit me up. And so then that was what became a huge focus. So I would say over the last 15 years, uh, I had not been a nurse practitioner all that long over the last 15 years, that's what shifted me enormously. And then probably the last five years I was practicing as a nurse practitioner I was getting increasingly disillusioned with the direction that preventative and chronic disease management was going. And I just kept saying, we can't just keep giving these people more pills. I mean, you know, we can't just keep telling people to eat all these grains and all this gluten and all these carbs and think that that's not contributing to this metabolic disease that we are seeing with exponential rates. And so for me, I I woke up one morning, I remember telling my husband I was just ready. I said, I cannot... I cannot in good faith go to work and continue to write prescriptions for things that could be so much better addressed if we talked about food. And the patients that we're seeing in the office, 90% of them, they were very conditioned. The conditioning was, you have a symptom, you get a pill. They watch a commercial. The pharmaceutical you know, drug companies do a fantastic job of marketing to patients, which is something that's still fairly new. And I just felt like in good conscience, I could not continue to support That mindset. Now, let's be very clear. I want to be very clear. There's absolutely positively a pace in emergency medicine, surgery, and acute care management for Western medicine trained providers and perspectives. I'm by no means being critical of my peers. I just think that we need to look at this problem a little differently. And so now there are hundreds of us that are physicians, nurses, nurse practitioners, PAs. Lots of healthcare providers that are looking differently at this problem, and I think we're really making tremendous strides. And so that's kind of how it evolved. And then, uh, you know, the other the other hiccup was I go from working in an office and a hospital where I've all this support system, and then I go to working for myself, and boy, that was incredibly humbling. Mm-hmm. And I have to tell when I when I see new entrepreneurs, kind of on many of whom are on the same kind of path trajectory that I was on. When they talk to me, they're like, oh my gosh, you know, how did you get from point A to point B? And I'm like, a ton of work. Anyone that sees an entrepreneur that's successful, it is a ton of work. I mean, let's be clear, you will work harder as an entrepreneur than you ever did as an employee. Uh, And that's not demeaning people that choose to work for uh, an organization because we need all types of workers. But I can tell you now, I could never go back to what I was doing before because I've evolved so much as a human being. And I think when you're an entrepreneur, especially as a female you kind of really learn to advocate for yourself. Not that I've ever been a pushover, not that I have not had a strong conscience sense of self, but when you're in control of your business, you recognize that you can either be effective or ineffective. And being ineffective is not even an option. So you definitely start to think on your feet. And uh, yeah, that, that's my, that's the, the basic story of how I kind of shifted and evolved.
1: What a powerful story, right? I, I, lo- I love this. Yes, it is crazy. crazy. So I have... I have a question. This is polarizing. And if it's, mm-hmm. if it hits you the wrong way, we can definitely skip it. Okay. Vaccinations. Yes. What's your thought and take on them? Like I'll, I'll answer my side first. Okay. I was vaccinated as a child. Mm-hmm. I've experienced no sort of major sickness or illness in my adult life. But as I look at our child, my, my wife and I. I would say that now, from what I believe and understand, I don't believe that vaccinations or massive courses of anabolic, or well, for me, it was anabolics, but antibiotics, mm-hmm. right? I don't believe that those are a healthy methodology for increasing our child's gut microbiome and their defense mechanisms against environmental changes. That's my belief. I am very uneducated, but I'm curious about what an educated person would say to me in response to that.
0: Okay. So two separate issues. I do think that antibiotic use is, is overused. I mean, let's be clear. If, if you are an adult and you've only had one course of antibiotics, you know, I'm in my 40s, that's pretty unusual. If you're a child that hasn't had multiple rounds of antibiotics, that's unusual. I think that's a separate issue. Um, there's a time and a place for antibiotics. I'll be completely transparent and tell you last year I almost died. And if I had not had antibiotics and antifungals, I might not be here. So there is a time and a place, but I think we have bought into this mentality. And I say this as a, as a societal mentality. People don't like feeling bad. They don't want to ride out a bad cold or an upper respiratory infection. So they, are, they put healthcare providers in a precarious position. And sometimes healthcare providers would rather Just give them the prescription, then just have some tough talk that you need to treat it with supportive care. So Mm -hmm. that's one issue. Do I think there are a lot of vaccines? Yes. Do I think there's value in vaccines? Yes. I would be remiss and I would probably get sued as a healthcare provider if I were to suggest otherwise. However, I do think the current vaccine schedules... The amount of vaccines infants and children receive in one dose I, that concerns me, which is not to suggest they couldn't they couldn't distribute the vaccine schedule a little bit differently. My children are fully vaccinated I want to be upfront about that. I do know there are children that have been, that have had issues when they've gotten vaccines, and so I, I think that there needs to be more research. i don't feel because I never worked with pediatric patients other than when I was an ER nurse so i don't feel like i'm in a position where i can say i've looked at the literature and this is what i feel based on research i know that it's concerning that people feel fearful about vaccines because they are they are designed to be helpful and beneficial and yet i in my area i live in the washington dc suburbs there is a measles outbreak in my my county now because of my immunocompromised state from being sick last year my measles titers are very low i actually should get another measles vaccine, but they've held off because they are concerned about giving me a live vaccine given how sick I was. So I'm just trying to provide some context. I find it concerning that I'm going to get exposed to measles because there are kids who aren't getting vaccinated at all. And so it becomes, and I can see both sides, it becomes a public health issue when people are, you know, things like measles and polio and, you know, um, I always think about meningitis. I mean, things that should be preventable are no people are no longer protected because people are fearful of getting their their young adults or their children vaccines. So I think that's a very a very polarizing, I agree with you. It's a very polarizing issue. I think that uh, it requires more research and and in order to be thoughtful, I, I I can just provide my perspective and and be transparent and say, you know, I don't want to get measles, but that's that could be a potential real possibility for me as as an adult and I've been fully vaccinated. Mm-hmm. But there is, you know, over time, some of these vaccines can wear off, which is what's happened to me. I was born in the 70s. I've I've had all my vaccines. And working in healthcare, you get more vaccines than the average person. <laughs> so I, I think it's 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 a tough situation to be in. I'm very sensitive to people's experiences that they've shared with me, you know, either vaccine injuries or concerns for vaccine injuries or people just being fearful that they're going to their children are going to develop some type of, um, you know, long-term developmental issue if they get fully vaxxed. And so I I think that there needs to be more research and and more thoughtful discussion because I, I think we've gotten to a point where a lot of healthcare providers get very angry about it. Parents get very angry about it. And somewhere in the middle, everyone needs to come together and have a thoughtful discussion to really look through the research and the data and find out where the concerns are. But I can tell you as a you know, the lay public person. Now the concerns that I have about contracting measles when I can't get the vaccine myself, I I can appreciate what people get upset. You know, it's definitely, definitely can be an issue for sure. Well,
1: absolutely. And I want to, you said something that, you know, sticks with me. I am not anti-vax in the fact that no one should have it. I think, like you said, there's a hyper feel to me about the amount and the scheduling of vaccines, preventative things, polio, measles, great. Like, I just believe like flu shots and things like that right now, just from, again, a very lay person, like, it just yeah. seems like another way for big pharma to make more money. Yeah. And again, you know, I don't know. I think as we dive into now, I'll say kind of pivoting our conversation into the ways that we can live our lives to strengthen our immune system, to live a more holistically balanced life, to connect back to nature when we didn't have this massive amount of disease. Yeah, like, There's a lot of things that we can do as, functional I'll call us human beings yeah to not have these things be as prevalent in my opinion but you're again very 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 brilliant in the space right we start talking about things like fasting where right coming from the bodybuilding world for me to think even five years ago that I might go three days without food
0: oh my gosh <laughs> Yeah, just, in you're
1: my mind from I was being, being
0: muscular to being like this skinny scrawny guy I'm sure that's oh. what we were worried about
1: it was horrible, but right. You talk to me about your, what you would recommend for fasting schedules and how to branch into that. and Some of the benefits you see from it, if there are some, right? Like, Yeah. Yeah.
0: And, and so I, I think, I think we've, unfortunately it's, again, it's this modern societal belief that we have to snack every couple of hours. We have to eat breakfast. We have to have mini meals. Um, I'm sure as a bodybuilder, you probably, you mentioned you're eating every two hours and, and I know there are people that still ascribe to that belief but that's a modern day phenomenon that is not the way the hunter warriors ate that is not the way we ate before refrigeration and so it's really a modern day evolution of this mindset that we have to have snacks and we have to have mini meals and we have to eat all the time you know when i grew up in the 70s and the 80s i mean it was three meals a day and no snacks and that's how my parents believed and that's how i grew up and i grew up a very healthy normal weight and it was probably not until my 20s that I really noticed there was this push for the processed food industry. So what I think has come out of that and the rise of the obesity situation is this reconsideration to strategies that have been around for, since biblical times. Um, fasting is not new, although people like to think that it is. Uh, I think it's getting lots of, of focus and lots of press. And so our bodies are designed to eat less and fast more. And so... When people first hear about intermittent fasting and I start talking about it, first of all, they're, they're paranoid that they're going to waste away. I'm like, hardly going to happen. Most of us have plenty of adipose or fat tissue. That's not going to happen. But what really starts to happen is when your insulin levels are low, like when you're not eating. So insulin is this hormone that is secreted in response to food and helps move uh, you know, blood sh- moves our, moves sugar from our, from our bloodstream into cells. That's the most simplistic way to put it. So when insulin levels are low, like when we're fasted, we have things like improved mental clarity, we um, evoke autophagy, which is the spring cleaning of the cells, and that is not evoked at any other time. And We want our bodies to take time to digest our food. Um, it slows absorption. Suddenly people are more mental clarity, they sleep better, They're all of a sudden they're no longer bloated, um, they lessen their likelihood of developing insulin resistance or diabetes, their blood pressure improves, their cholesterol panels improve. They reduce their likelihood of developing uh, Alzheimer's, which is type 3 dementia, as well as Parkinson's, and a slew of other benefits. And, you know, people come to intermittent fasting because they want to lose weight. That's, that's generally what people talk about, but they stay for all the other benefits. But when I'm speaking to someone for the first time about intermittent fasting, we always start off with, a: you probably ate dinner at 6 o'clock at night and you ate breakfast at 8. You've already fasted 14 hours. Try to see if you can go to 15 hours. Try 16 hours. Everyone's got a sweet spot. For some people, they like 18 hours. My husband is rigid to the 18 hours mark. I mean, that really works well for him. I have some women that just eat one meal a day. It really depends on, can you get the proper amount of macros, protein, fat, and carbs within your feeding window? And do you feel good? Do you sleep well? Do you still have sex drive? Um, do you have plenty of energy? Uh, you know, Are you mentally clear? And so you're always kind of checking in with yourself. And so obviously there are people who should do intermittent fasting and people that shouldn't. It really depends on the individual for sure. But it's, it's one of the strategies and it's not a nutritional philosophy because you can do it with any type of nutritional program, but I always encourage people to eat clean. I'm like, let's be real. You can't do, you really can't benefit from intermittent fasting if you're eating Twinkies and Ho-Ho's all day long. Um, I'm not sure if they're even still making those. I don't know. It's not even on my radar. Don't look for those things in the grocery store. But if you're eating nutrient dense, whole foods, you know, good quality protein Um, you know, good amount of vegetables, you're eating, you know, low glycemic fruits, those are things like berries, and, you know, a tart apple, those are going to be better options for you than eating a highly processed diet and trying to, which tends to be very inflammatory, usually has a lot of refined seed oils is full of soy and other types of garbage. So I always say you are what you eat. So this is a strategy that people can use throughout their lifetime. You can use it when you go on vacation, you can use it if you're exercising. Um, the really cool thing is that if you have been doing intermittent fasting long enough, you're then fat adapted. And so you can go to the gym and you can work through a tough workout and not feel like you need to eat something. And for a lot of people that have been conditioned to believe they need a protein shake before they go to the gym, a protein shake 30 minutes after, you know, they have to be very rigid about when they're eating. And I just don't buy into that philosophy anymore. I was able to put, this is always a question that comes up, I was able to put on 10 pounds of, of muscle after losing 15 pounds being in the hospital. So I tell people, you can do it and gain muscle mass. I'm a woman. I might not be able to gain your muscle mass as a dude, but, um, you know, you definitely can put muscle on. It's not a, you know, you do this then you can't get this. And there's always a, a vigorous debate on this usually on Twitter.
1: <laughs> well, of course. And I, I love, right. all the. um, I'll say uh, for me, it's bro science, right? All the people from the gym that said, no, 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 this, yeah. this can't work this way. And then exactly. they just, I just, they're not even open to the possibility that there could be something different. And I was, my hands raised. Like, I was one of those guys, if you go back five years, where it's like, no, 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 I needed two, two grams of protein for every lean, of body mass that I had in order to be in a, you know, a hyper anabolic state, coupled with, again, anabolics and what? human growth hormone and insulin and IGF 1 and everything else I could cram into my body, which, as you're talking about insulin resistance from running human growth hormone for so long, I was, you know, my, my insulin feedback loop was starting to be way out of whack. Yeah. And intermittent fasting has completely corrected that for me, right? Like blood hey, sugar hey, gloves hey. are as stable as could be. And wow. then I, of course, I push it and super curious on your feedback on how long you would recommend or could even recommend somebody fasting for more than I'll say an intermittent amount of time, right? I'm a 72, sometimes pushing as far as 96 hours with nothing more than water.
0: Yeah, I think it depends on the person. So for me personally, I don't do, I've done three-day fasts, but the longest I do is 24-hour fasts. Uh, You know, if you start looking at the benefits, you look at the study data, when you're doing three to five-day fasts, that's when you can impact telomere length, and that impacts healthy aging. Um, There's other benefits. And so you really have to be asking, why are you doing it? I do see some people that use intermittent fasting, prolonged fasts as a way to fuel their eating disorder. So some people are, they're anorexic or orthorexic. And so they get paranoid that they have to do these resets for their bodies. Now we did interview Simlad. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. He wrote the book, Metabolic Autophagy. So he's considered to be another intermittent fasting expert. And I had him on our podcast. And I was asking him, I said, what do you think about prolonged fasting? And he said, two to three days a quarter is kind of where he is. He's also in his twenties. So different, different age group. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, based on his research, he was saying two to three days, he thinks is great. He said any more than that. I'm not sure if to, there's a lot of benefit, but you do have people that get very fixated on the telomere lengthening processes of, uh, you know, aging. And and I I don't, I don't know if I've read anything enough yet that has convinced me I need to do a really prolonged fast. Um, I think fasting is more mental than physical. I think people are surprised to hear that, but I remind them that even when I do a 24 hour fast, always the last two or three hours are the toughest. I'm like, get yourself outside, get away from the refrigerator, get away from, you know, don't be going out out with friends and trying to fast, you know, in the evening that can be kind of brutal. Um, But you do come to find out that there's a whole spiritual element to prolonged fast that, I think most people are probably surprised by I'm not sure if that has been your experience.
1: Cynthia, that is one hundred percent the reason in which I do it. Mm-hmm. Like bar none, right, because I, I look at even the reduction inflammation or i.e. the scale weight dropping. Yeah. To me it's superficial, right? I'm hyper hydrating myself. I'm putting the pink salt in and I'm doing things right to have my electrolyte balance be yep. give yep. or take still in line. So of course I'm still gonna I'm gonna see after the first twenty four hours a pretty rapid decrease in scale weight but right. when i get back to eating in my normal intermittent fasting it kind of comes back yeah for me, for me it's that thing of it's always at that 36 hour mark it's like my brain finally turns on again in this yeah. whole different way and yeah but I'm, I'm a big believer in tracking everything right so it's an aura ring it's yeah. a whoop like a if i can't track and measure it how do i know if it's really working and so you start getting into the I'd love to talk about sleep and right, the combination of deep versus REM and what percentage that should look like and how s- optimized sleep cycle should be, because I didn't realize how short I was coming on sleep. Right? Like,
0: all the biohacking piece is fascinating.
1: Oh, and it's, it's what's crazy to me is really biohacking just removing modern Like we're calling it biohacking, but we're just reverting back to our
0: way we're supposed to be.
1: Yeah, the biological you know growth that we've experienced. in this hyper-technology world, obviously, where we're having this conversation from Mm -hmm. hundreds of miles apart, and might as well be right in front of me, but even you said refrigeration's only been 120 years or so? Like,
0: I think that's, you know, it's both good and bad. I mean, that's the thing about technology. It's both good and bad. Zoom allows us to have these, like, intimate conversations with people that we otherwise wouldn't run into, you know, locally. But I do think that getting back to basics, and so that's a discussion I'm oftentimes having, you know, getting out and getting sunlight first thing in the morning. And so I tell all of my clients that have got dogs, I'm like, get outside for 15 or 20 minutes. I know it's not warm outside right now. Well, today is an exception. This is an exceptionally warm February day. but. In most instances, I'm like, get out and get sunlight on your skin. You've got receptors in your skin. You've got receptors in your retina that you know kind of support that circadian rhythm, You know, which circadian rhythms are what are involved with cortisol response in the body. And so making sure that you've got this healthy kind of vigorous response, we want our cortisol to be highest in the morning, ebbs and flows throughout the day, and then kind of drops off in the evening when we get sleepy. But what happens is we're usually with artificial light all day long. We're in front of blue screens. That dysregulates melatonin when we start getting closer to bedtime, and our body says, "Okay, well, it's not time to go to bed because it's so light." You know, all this light that we're experiencing—it's um, so light that what I'm going to do is tell the body that it's time to be up, and so that's when you'll get that second wind at you know 10 o'clock at night. And to remind people that you need to have a sleep ritual, and that may not be sexy. I mean, I tell my husband all the time, "This is not the way I lived when we first met when I was 30 years old." That. You know, I wear blue blockers, and I wear a sleep mask, and I have Muse, and I have brain tap, and I have, you know, blockout shades. And, you know, I've got all these things that I do now because I like my body to know. It's it's much like when you have a baby or a small child, it's time to go to bed. It's that sleep hygiene that is so, so important. And I find that when people start making those changes, because what's everyone's natural inclination that has kids? Oh, when my kids go to bed, I get a bunch of work done. Like, no, 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 no. Go to bed. You need the sleep probably just as much as they do. And I have a tween and a teen, and I jokingly remind them we all need the same amount of sleep. Although they, they think they're impervious to sleep, I have to remind them that we all need sleep, and the sleep quality is critical. And how many people don't get enough deep sleep? They don't get enough REM sleep, and they don't wake up refreshed. And I remind people how critical it is to our brain function. Our brains are more active at, and when we're sleeping than they are any other time. Um, during the day in that lymphatic system and and so diving into that kind of nerdy anatomy and physiology, explaining to people that um, if they 're not taking care of themselves that their body will let them know, and oftentimes it 's in the form of weight gain, insulin resistance, you know inability to uh you know properly manage stress i think that and you may find this you know within your own community people deal with so much so much high level stress all the time they've become they just think they're impervious to it. I'm like, oh, it's it's kind of like you just keep stacking the plates, you know, it's like more and more, more and more, more until something happens and then they can't deal with it anymore. Or, you know, they're really unhappy. They look inflamed, they've gained weight, they're miserable, their sleep is terrible, they're craving sugar and carby junk and probably drinking too much alcohol and you know, a whole bunch of other, probably watching too much Netflix.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so so Cynthia, if we if we go through, if you don't mind sharing, what would be an ideal, I'll say, nighttime ritual, right? If 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 I was was fortunate enough to work with you in some capacity, I'll do whatever you tell me to do from five PM on.
0: Yeah, I would say get your blue blockers on, and so you can buy inexpensive blue blockers. You know, Uvex is cheap; it's like ten bucks. My kids have Uvexes; they go over existing glasses. Um, however, I also remind people that you know there are better brands. Use Swanwick is the one that I wear because it's designed for smaller faces. Uvex is kind of a Like as a dude, you could wear the big glasses and it would be sliding down your nose. So starting with blue blockers, when it starts getting dusky outside, the blue blockers go on, you know, making sure that you're closing your feeding window earlier in the evening and not eating a dinner, eight, nine o'clock at night, when it's going to be harder on your body to digest the food when you're going to bed. I always talk about, you know, these sleep rituals for some people, it can be L-theanine, it could be Seraphos, it could be, you know, maybe some people are taking CBD based products um, here in, in Northern Virginia, they're, they're very popular and it, and finding good quality products is important. Um, I don't like anyone to be taking melatonin every night. I know that is probably wildly unpopular, but it's still a hormone. And what is it going to do? It's going to tell your body's intrinsic, you know, exogenous, endogenous secretion of melatonin is not going to occur. If you're taking it, your body's going to say, Oh, I got plenty. I don't need to worry about this. Um, and then, you know, making sure that you're in a cold, dark room, getting off of electronics, An hour or two before you go to bed I mean how many people sit in their bedrooms and watch TV or on their iPads or on their phone Uh, really even with the um, everyone has these options on their iPhones and their iPads that kind of like darkening it goes down at a certain time still not enough get off of that read a book you'd be surprised how much easier you fall asleep when you read a book as opposed to watching something on a tablet and then you know creating some type of a environment for me I like having a sleep mask because for me I'm very sensitive to light when I sleep now um for some people they like to soak in magnesium or they like to use essential oils i mean i'm not a big essential oils person but you know lavender is one of those things that can be very relaxing for people and then really finding what works best for you sometimes people like to have a ritual of maybe having a you know a herbal tea that is non-stimulating or maybe someone is going to drink a magnesium drink i mean really dependent on you know what works best for you and and sometimes i find Nearly every person benefits from having you know they 're going to protein healthy fats and maybe a small portion of carbohydrate with their dinner. I forgot to mention that, so it might be a sweet potato or some squash i 'm not talking about rice and bread and pasta i 'm talking about whole food sources of carbohydrates that are really going to be beneficial but thats that 's usually where I start and then I tweak from there
1: I love it I love it and that like my thought on that and to share if you like let 's go back in time to I'll say the, the, the prehistoric days or caveman mm-hmm. time
0: mm-hmm. sun goes
1: down we figure out fire yep we want to stay warm yep we put a fire on we've gathered all the sticks that are around us the fire burns till it goes out and then it gets cold mm-hmm. and so there's you have that yellow slash red light exposure from the fire you don't have any blue light of course your body gets adapted to sleep in a cold environment as yeah. the sun naturally comes up there's more I'll call it natural blue light that enters enters our retinas, right? That, so we're that's that triggering effect to to turn yourself on. Yeah. And those sleep cycles are what, give or take 90 minutes? Is that kind of the the flow and yep. REM versus deep sleep in a sleep cycle, what, 30, 40% somewhere is really healthy? And that's,
0: I think that's ideally where it should be. I think it probably depends on the individual. And certainly the aura rings, I know for a lot of my clients, they get completely freaked out. They're like, oh my God, last night I only slept this much. I'm like... It's always in the context of overwhelming, like overall, like what is your typical cycle. But I find most people, if they have dysfunctional sleep patterns, they already know it. It's not a surprise.
1: Right. Absolutely. And little things for me, as, as you're listening, when I encourage you, my right, blackout shades from Amazon, like to be surprised how much ambient light is coming from the street lights or from cars driving down the road or these things. Yeah. Like, no, no, my, my room's dark. Well, until you put blackout shades on and you take the little, it's not dark. Yeah, I take a little tape and hide over all the little red lights and all the stuff on the TVs. And mm-hmm. like, there's a whole different level of dark that you can achieve. And man, that was an instant game changer. That and turning the, the temperature of the room down to, I think ours is 67, 68 degrees. Yeah,
0: we do we do 65 in the winter. And the other thing that I forgot to mention, for a lot of people, they're very sensitive to EMF and radiation. And so we turn off our router and our Wi-Fi at night. Mm-hmm. Uh, And that has had a big, so think about it, those kinds of things disrupt cortisol secretion. And so they can spike your cortisol if you're not sleeping. We have grounding mats under our beds, which my husband thought was way woo-woo when we did it. But I, I swear, I mean, my quality of life has improved exponentially since having grounding mats because we had our entire house tested. And so I knew what was creating the most radiation and EMF in the house. And so we made changes accordingly. I mean, you can't, most people can't just move from where they live. Right. Um, there are more data centers in my area than there are in most other parts of the country. And so, woo-woo for, you know, the board of supervisors who thought that was a great idea. But you start to see people's sleep quality is impacted. It's kind of like the canary in the coal mine. So I agree with you. All those things are absolutely critical. You know, sleep is foundational to our health. We don't talk enough about it.
1: Not at all. And I, with you bringing up the grounding, Matt, I think that's that was also a game changer for me was taking off my shoes and going outside and grounding myself in nature as we were intended to like Mm -hmm. not on concrete not on asphalt like physical grass and just standing there for five or ten minutes like it's crazy that sounds like being next to a tree Mm -hmm. there's all these simple things that now are right deemed biohacking which right it's living like
0: yeah maybe we're supposed to Well, and it's funny, like my study, I look out over my front yard, but I have this massive tree. And so for me, there's nothing better than when I look outside, I see nature all day long. And I mean, I get outside multiple times a day, but for me, it's so wonderful that I'm not staring at like, I'm not in the cubicle. I'm not, I'm not dealing with recirculated hair all day long. I'm not, you know, I don't have a coughing neighbor, you know, I'm kind of in this quiet environment. And until my kids come home, my house is pretty quiet. And so it's a very peaceful, as peaceful can be working environment given my circumstances. So
1: certainly that Cynthia, what's your take on for me, I call it mitochondria efficiency, right? So I'm a I'm a Druf red light guy in the morning, I'm an infrared sauna guy, I'm a bulletproof vibration plate, I'm the deep chest cooler at 37 degrees of water and three minutes of submersion and back and forth between hot and cold for two or three cycles. Good stuff, bad stuff, witchcraft.
0: What do, you, what do you think of that stuff? No, no, I, I do. Um, you know, I'm a big Wim Hof fan. And so I, you know, he's another great biohacker. It's taken me a little while. I'm not a cold, I'm not a cold temperature fan. I don't love cold showers. I, I handle about 15 seconds of cold water. I do cryotherapy. I definitely believe in red light therapy and I mean infrared sauna, I would love to have one in my house, but I'm convinced my children now they're a tween and teen, so they're old enough to know better. But you know maybe when I'm in a different house, I'll be able to parlay that, but I'm just like I just imagine them locking them their friends in it, and you know just, it just so would just not be a, a good situation. But I think all those modalities can be beneficial. I think that you know infrared saunas it, it, there's there's some good research. I mean, I know I feel good when I'm in them. Um I don't sweat a ton, and so that's always the joke. And I'm like, clearly, I'm fit and I'm healthy. Uh, and then some people try to say, well, if you're not sweating a ton, then you're not doing it right. I'm like, I don't know if I buy into that. but you know, if it makes you feel good, I mean, that's half the battle. It's it's part of that self-care. Like for me, I do acupuncture regularly and I do Reiki therapy. And those kinds of things are like delicious naps because you're kind of tapped into your parasympathetic. It's all about tapping to that rest and repose side of our brains. And so I think whatever it is you choose to do, and all those things that you mentioned, as well as what I mentioned, tap into that parasympathetic side of the body, the nervous system, those are all beneficial. You know, we tend to be sympathetic dominant in our current culture. And so I think it's good to gear down. I think it's really important, however that looks, you know, obviously some people can just whistle or they can do meditation and they can tap into that side of their body. But I think for many of us who are very action oriented, sometimes it's nice to be doing something while we're tapping into that parasympathetic. If that makes sense. You know, yoga is another 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 good option too.
1: Yeah. I love that. And then this is another one of those polarizing conversations. Maybe. I'm a big believer in eating for my blood type okay right like the I don't know if you're familiar with you know I am the, the Adamo and, and his studies and his work and right I, I fought against it for a while and then right I'm an O positive blood type guy so to me caveman blood type it just so happens I've always liked red meat I've never liked carbs I've always been able to go a long period of time without eating like and I didn't know that eating for your blood type existed I'd never even heard of it before picked up the book or somebody gave me the book at some point I'm like man this is Literally, it's exactly what he's referencing is mirroring mine and then getting into the neurotyping, right, with Christian Thibodeau and some of the work that then right, he's bounced around and seeing like, man, there's there's a lot of these different modalities that are all kind of saying the same thing with their own own vernacular to it. No, have what's your thought on any of that stuff, right? Like to me, I I, I get this privilege of speaking with you with so much brilliance. That, <laughs> for me, I'm I'm, I'm kind of winging it in a lot
0: of these things. Yeah, no, no. I mean, I would say so. I am O positive, and for anyone that's listening and, and that follows me on social media, I'm carnivore-ish. So I'm not 100% carnivore. But after I got out of the hospital last year, the only thing I thought about uh, was water. The first week, week two of being in the hospital, I thought nothing. I thought of beef constantly. I mean, I wanted a juicy burger, and when I got it, all I wanted was beef, and I wanted clementines. So I was anemic, and my body was craving red meat, which has iron, and craving the vitamin C and the orange, which you know kind of validates, you know, that helps with absorption. So, do I think that there is value? I think it's coincidental for me personally that. I am O positive and and according to that diet plan that I should be eating lots of red meat um, and fasting because that's what I do. Uh, I think that before I'd gotten sick, I might've said, oh, there's no way I don't really eat a lot of red meat, but that's now a huge focus of my life. I think it gives us opportunities to consider other perspectives. And we get research like that I don't poo-poo it. I usually say, well, it may not work for me per se, just coincidentally, it does. That that does kind of um, describe me as well. But I think it's all about being open-minded, quite honestly. I think that there's not a lot of great nutrition science, which is unfortunate. There's actually a really great book called Nutrition in Crisis, if you want to read about how um, we've really done a disservice to ourselves by not having great nutrition science, and so or nutrition research for that matter. So I, I think that I would be remiss to say I would never because I would have told you 10 years ago, there's no way I'd be carnivore and there's no way I would be intermittent fasting. So uh, we evolve and shift and change based on what our bodies need. And so it's, you know, do you sleep well? Do you have plenty of energy? Um, Can you perform at your best? And so if your diet is serving those purposes, then I think you're onto something. If it doesn't, and sometimes I get people on my plate who've been reformed vegans or maybe they've been eating a standard American diet. And I'm like, does your diet no longer serve you? I don't think that we are static individuals. I think we're dynamic. And therefore, I, I believe that we truly have to be open-minded because if you again, if you'd asked me 10 years ago, there's no way I would have intermittent fast, and there's no way I would be eating a predominantly meat-based diet. But I am and I'm thriving and I look and I look and feel great. And therefore it works for me. So I, I think it's really what works for you. But I do think that. People that are that are writing those books, whether it's about the blood type diet or doing nutritional science or doing neuroscience as it applies to nutrition, there's 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 things that people have found that have been effective. And I think we have to look more at it before we discount it and say, oh, well, that doesn't work. The only thing I'm not a fan of, and I'm very open about very open about this, I don't think a long-term vegan diet is healthy. Now, I will get lots of trolls coming after me. That's usually what happens. But it, we're that's why we have canines. We are designed to eat meat products we are designed to eat animals or at least you know consume dairy or we are designed to consume animal-based products whether it's honey or dairy products or butter i mean so i think it's naive if people think they're just going to eat fruits and vegetables the rest of their lives and nothing else
1: oh absolutely right and i love especially right as is what the uh whatever the documentary that came out, Game Changers.
0: Oh, God, I, I'm in the middle of writing a rebuttal. It makes me sad. It totally triggers me. I'm like, this is crap. And then you start looking at who actually influenced how that, how that was designed. I mean, it's, it's James Cameron. I mean, it's completely you know biased and self-serving. And I'm, and I'm not saying that there aren't people I follow who might be the same way. But I think when you really look at the science a plant-based diet is not the optimal way to live and thrive. Can you, can you go to a plant-based diet for a period of time? And I do, I did actually interact with someone on, I think it was on Twitter who said, you know, most of the time I'm paleo, but I'll go like a week out of the month and I just eat plants. And I'm like, heck if that works for you, good for you. But I bet on that week when you start eating meat again, you feel a whole lot differently. And he said, yes. So, you know, who's to say that you take a hundred people; you might have everyone may have a different variation. Whether it's carnivore-ish, they're doing paleo, they're doing primal, they're doing keto, low carb. I just think that with the rates of obesity that we have in the United States, there needs to be more people eating low carb and keto uh, than not. I, I think it triggers people because carbs are the things that tend to be highly addictive, and we really talk about food addiction, which is a whole tangential conversation. But I do think that the only way to sustain um, any type of nutritional programs, you have to be satiated. And if you're not satiated, it's not going to work. No. And, work.
1: and I love, right, you sharing the carbohydrate to me, epidemic, mm-hmm. right? Like, sure, right? We're all taught you need fat, carbohydrate, and protein as necessary building blocks. But the subcategories of all the different types of carbohydrates and the way that we have been preconditioned, right? I'm I'm an 80s baby, born in 84, right? Like, and it was fast food was starting to become prevalent and all these things were ready. But for me, I started literally looking at inflammatory markers and that might sound more fancy to you as you're listening. For me, an inflammatory marker was, were my nostrils staying open? Could I breathe through my nose? How was my stomach? Was it in the normal fashion or would it become distended after I ate? Yeah. And then a little crass, but how was my fecal matter? Right. right. Did, it, did it look normal? Or, about
0: poop. Yep. Yeah.
1: Or was it all over the place? Mm-hmm. I started looking like, man, if I, if I can't, if it's not really a root vegetable, right? If I can't pick it out of the ground, my body doesn't like it, right? Like, and then I started asking other people, not even fitness people, just, hey, let me know how you feel after you do these, you know, two or three things. And it's mm-hmm. started being, it seemed like everybody, like, can, can you think of one person that can benefit from eating?
0: highly processed car- carbohydrates like yeah, no i mean I, I think you know you think about it goes back to what's in it's usually highly processed nutrient, nutrient depleted full of seed oil so when you talk about seed oils you're talking about canola and soy and cotton fl- cotton flour and cotton seed and, and you start thinking about those things and then you consider that they tend they're designed to be highly addictive so you know, they call it the bliss point. There's another great book called Salt, Sugar, Fat. If you haven't read it, it's another book that changed my life. Um, salt, Sugar, Fat. And I'm also a gigantic dork. I'm always reading, like reading way too much. But the point being, that book talks about the rise of the processed food industry. And you start to really hear and understand that foods are designed to be as addictive as possible. So is it any surprise that people can't just have one Dorito or can't just have one, gla- one you know sip of Coke or can't just have, you know, one pringle and it's designed to be that way. It's designed to light up the pleasure centers in our brain and make it irresistible. And think about it this way, you take a very highly processed salt and combine it with an adulterated fat and add in some sugar and it's like you've created a super processed food. And so that's kind of what you're seeing uh you know when you go to best example, you know, Super Bowl a couple of days ago and you know i'm sure all across the united states people were chowing on all sorts of garbage and you know feeling like you're an outlier when you go to a super bowl party and you come with your whole 30 paleo buffalo chicken dip which was amazing and i had vegetables and i didn't drink and that was just cuz i'm doing whole 30 this month i decided it with all the travel i i was doing that i needed to kind of clean things up a little bit but you just recognize why it's so challenging i mean i watched the kids you know that we had a, everyone that was there had boys, and so the boys were drinking Arnold Palmer's. They were having endless, uh, you know, endless uh connection to the brownies. They were eating wings. I mean, it was like Dorit. It was just all this, you know. I mean, it's it's a celebration, so it's moderation, not deprivation. But you're wondering why these kids? It's like they're back forth, back forth, back forth, back forth. Well, because their brains are lit up. It's you know they get that dopamine rush every time they go over to that chip bowl. It's like ooh, yes,
1: yes, yes, yes. Really. Well, and, and you bringing up alcohol—that that's also been a fascinating thing for me. Not that I was ever—I'll say—a big drinker, mm-hmm. and right at I went with elimination versus mm-hmm. anything else. So it's probably yeah. been my wife and I got married May of. She's going to kill me eighteen, right? And that was the last time that I remember. Right, not that I got drunk, but I had a, right. a celebratory glass of champagne at, at that wow. moment, maybe one or two, nice. and just seeing even as I have testosterone levels checked and things like that, like mm-hmm. all the studies that now exist with what even one or two drinks can do
0: especially Especially beer especially beer i mean that's we call it the soy boys you know if you want to be a soy boy keep drinking your beer yeah what happens when you when you drink alcohol right so
1: my listeners cynthia are all over the board right Mm -hmm. 35 to probably 55 Mm -hmm. men and women are going to be the primary primary target of the show and so already my testosterone's on the way down, right? Yeah. It's not rising anymore. I want to keep it as, as high as I can right
0: now. Right, right. And it's interesting. I just watched a webinar last night talking about ways to strategize about improving testosterone in women too. And people forgot that women, just like men, produce estrogen, women also produce testosterone. So, you know, when I'm when I'm thinking about blood sugar and I'm thinking about alcohol, and you know, that will get digested. It'll be prioritized by the body. So I remind people that, you know, that really And I I usually pick on women because it's usually women that like the foofy drinks. I'm like, that drink that you're consuming at the bar could have 30, 40, 50 grams of sugar in it. And you want to talk about a way to just really dysregulate your blood sugar. When women start hitting a certain age, when they hit perimenopause, that five to seven years preceding menopause, which for many people is late 30s, early 40s, they find they can't, they can't tolerate alcohol. They start to sweat. They'll get in bed at night and they'll sweat, which is not sexy at all. But to me, I look at it as I don't drink all that often because it's wasted calories. I'm like, I'd rather have a really great piece of great quality chocolate. I would much rather have a little more healthy fat with a meal, whether it's butter or avocado or guac or whatever it is. I would much rather have that. And it's really allocating where you want to put your calories. But what starts to happen is a lot of people, it's the excess calories. They think they're 18 years old or 20, when we were completely impervious to weight gain, it would seem like when we were in college. Uh, now it's less of an issue. You're, you're, most of us have some degree of sarcopenia. So we have this muscle wasting, muscle loss as we get older. And so less muscle on our bodies means we have less you know, um, ability to burn calories. And so I, I just find that people eat too many calories and then they drink on top of it. And it kind of sets up this perfect storm for weight gain, inflammation, um, You know, there's all sorts of hacks for dealing with uh, alcohol consumption, you know, all sorts of tricks of the trade that I've learned over the years. But I would say, you know, if you're north of 35, you got to be careful with the alcohol. And the number one reason or one of the most contributory reasons for people having low testosterone is insulin resistance. So why sweeten the pot, if you will, um, of making yourself more prone to being insulin resistant by consuming something that we know doesn't have a lot of physiologic benefit? Now, you know, every once in a while, if you want a glass of wine, or if you want to have a martini, or you have a glass of bourbon, or whatever it is that is your pleasure, enjoy it. But don't be doing that every night, because you're really going to derail all your hard work.
1: Well, I love that, and I love, I got to know, give me, give me one or two of the hacks, right? You said you had alcohol hacks. Yeah, the-
0: so I would say taking NAC, N-A-C, the naturally occurring substance in the body, before and after and then taking some liposomal glutathione before bed if you do have a night of drinking. And I found those things. And that was taught to me by a biochemistry PhD uh, that's a good friend of mine. And so I was like, she knows the science on another level than what I do. But I always remind people, I'm like, if, if taking something that easy makes it a whole lot more relatable. I mean, just for me personally, I don't feel good when I drink anymore. I mean, I never was a big drinker to begin with, but... I will have one or two glasses of wine once, or tw- once a month, probably at most, or a martini, and I can tolerate that. But any more, and it's just, it's a problem.
1: Absolutely. And I, thank you for the tips. And I love, right, you're talking about liposomal glutathione, glutathione. right? Glutathione. Is, is, I, to me, right, if you're going to recommend two, I'll call them supplements, three supplements, whatever comes to mind that you think most, and I know this, is, this, is, this could be, a, I might put you in a box, I'm not trying to. Right, if there's two or three supplements that most people could benefit in their 30s and 40s to supplement with, with the way that most people are eating, I know liposomal glutathione is one of my stables, right? It's just a master antioxidant. Like, I, I want that in my body all the time. Is that one of your go tos? And is it what else would you recommend? Like, I
0: like the delivery mechanism of liposomal because I know I'm,
1: it's just higher bioavailability.
0: Right, right, right. So I don't recommend I don't recommend it for everyone. It depends because I do a lot of diagnostic testing. I would say first and foremost magnesium, but it needs to be an absorbable form of magnesium, not just any old magnesium will do. And so there's a product called Jigsaw Magnesium SRT, so slow release, you know, two twice a day. Most, if not everyone that is listening to this podcast is magnesium deficient because we don't get enough magnesium from our soil, even if you eat organic. We live highly stressed lives. And so if taking a supplement's not of interest, I would say a magnesium spray or oil, ancient minerals is a good product. That's another option. Um, I, I you know, for many years I worked in cardiology, so I'm very, very savvy, very, very savvy with magnesium. I would say magnesium would be first. Um, second, I love adaptogenic herbs. So I start thinking about things like maca, ashwagandha, lemon balm, et cetera. Uh, Again, there's no one I know that doesn't have some degree of stress. And these are naturally occurring plants and substances that can help support cortisol, can be very nourishing. Maca can be tricky because I like to do testing before recommending it, but Maca every once in a while is otherwise okay. And then I would say probably my other go-to is probably right now, I'm really a huge fan of L-theanine. Again, it's an amino acid. It can take the, it can take kind of the Without being sedating, it can take some of the edge off if people are anxious during the day. But also, can be very, very beneficial for sleep. And so, there's a lot of research going on about L-theanine. It's very easy to take, very safe to take. But again, as I always say, my disclaimer: you know, discuss these things with your healthcare provider um, to see if it's appropriate for you. But those are generally easier things. Liposomal glutathione. I worry about quality. That's always the the bugaboo for me. Is that I, I want to ensure someone's getting good quality supplements and that means not buying them off of amazon i know that gets people all triggered but most really good quality supplement companies will not third party source which means they will not sell to amazon i like amazon for a lot of things but that's not what i that's not where i recommend purchasing them from
1: so i won't for me my my liposomal products all come from quicksilver scientific
0: it's yeah great quality
1: right and there's just a few sources for me in the supplement world, no different than. And this is again polarizing, but dentistry or plastic surgery or things like that, cheaper is not better almost right. ever. If, right. if someone's able to run a two for one yep. sale, yep. it can't be a quality product. Like there's this whole other niche in supplementation that is literally like one step just below pharmaceutical that you probably never heard of, and it's not on Amazon. And it mm-hmm. you're going to need somebody like Cynthia to recommend these these sources for most people because. They're not advertised like it, it comes from this whole different practitioner type of network yeah what are would you mind sharing two or three if, if any of those pop into your mind of things that you know that if someone does take a supplement right now they can go look and say look my vitamin c i've been buying it from the chewable tabs in your local grocery store which mm. are atrocious versus three other sources or whatever comes to mind
0: Um, I I think it's challenging because the places that I get supplements from only sell to licensed healthcare providers. So the average person wouldn't be able to, but I would say better brands are things like orthomolecular, Zymogen, Quicksilver. Uh, I really like Designs for Health. Uh, You know, Biotics is reasonable. Apex Energetics. And so obviously you're not going to find them on Amazon, but places like, um, why am I drawing a blank? Natural partners, you still have to go through a healthcare provider, but at least then you know that if you're going through someone, you're going to get uh, better quality. I I always say, like, I like pharmaceutical grade supplements for a reason, because then I know they've done third party testing. They've ensured that what's in there, I mean, I'll give you a good example fish oil. Everyone wants to take fish oil. So they go to Costco and they buy this massive bottle of probably rancid fish oil. And they don't even realize that instead of reducing inflammation in their body, they're, it's pro-inflammatory because it's rancid. Or who knows what it is. It could be soybean oil in there. You don't know. And so I think it's really critical to make sure, do you really need it? You know, I'm not a fan of people taking stuff just to take it. It's like, do you genuinely have a need to be on this supplement? And so I think all of us are guilty of sometimes reading an article and then we're like, oh my gosh, I've got to go take coenzyme Q10 or I've got to take fish oil. And I'm like, yeah, my question is always, can you metabolize it? You know, are you processing your fats properly? Can you tolerate that? Uh, you know, A good example is um, there are a lot of people that still buy into the belief that it's a one-size-fits-all you know, kind of philosophy when it comes to nutrition or supplementation. And I just remind people, I'm like, I just don't buy into that at all. You know, for example, a lot of the gallbladder support products that are out there have things like beets in them. Well, beets are great. I mean, don't get me wrong. Beets are also high in oxalates. So, if someone is sensitive to oxalates and taking digestive enzymes or taking gallbladder support, I mean, they're causing more inflammation than if they just weren't taking it all. So, I always think it has to be taken in the context of who are you as an individual, what are your symptoms, what's going on, and what do you really need intrinsically.
1: Well, and I I love that Cynthia. With I want someone to be able to reach out and connect with you, right? Because. Mm-hmm even the access to the supplements, if nothing else, right. If as you're listening and you've gotten the value from Cynthia and you're like, man, there's, there's, there's a lot more to unpack than just this, right. We, we get this hour together. And so how can someone get a hold of you? What, right. What are the things that you can offer them? How does your system work for them?
0: Yeah. So thank you. So I do one-on-one coaching and I also have group programs. I have intermittent fasting 45, which is for men and women. And then I also have Find Your Inner Goddess, which for obviously name purposes is for women. But I do, I would say the easiest way to find me is through my website, www.cynthiathurlo.com. I am active on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. I actually have a Facebook group that's called Intermittent Fasting Lifestyle, backslash my name. Um, That's open to men and women. Again, I usually seem to attract more women than men, but uh, I also attract a nice group of guys as well. So you can find me on any of those platforms. And I have a really wonderful assistant who, uh, you know, fields all the emails and, you know, sends things to me that I need to deal with and then takes care of the rest. I
1: love it. Cynthia, I couldn't be more appreciative of your time, your brilliance, your energy, and just all the stuff that you've shared. Thank you so much for being a guest. I really, really appreciate you.
0: No, I loved our time together. It's been my pleasure.